Passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxis. Um, There are people out there that will tell you that Jesus was a good moral teacher, a a virtuous man who was trying to make good and positive changes in the world he lived. And he was expecting that when he went into Jerusalem, he'd be able to create changes in a really big way, but it all backfired. The train went off the tracks, and his good hopes and expectations for what would happen in Jerusalem didn't work out, and Jesus was destroyed, and Jesus died. People will tell you that that's a, what happened to Jesus in Jerusalem was a burning ending of his good plans. I'm here to tell you that's not true. That Jesus' death in Jerusalem was ex- exactly what God had planned since before the very foundation of the world. In fact, the reason, reason Jesus was born is so that Jesus would die. Die in our place for our sins. Now, um, Jesus has been telling us this again and again in the Gospel of Mark. Many times, he has forecasted exactly what would happen with very detailed specifics about who would kill him, when he would die, and exactly how he would die. We've seen that as we've worked our way through this gospel. If you have your outlines, you'll see some of those forecasting things um, I put there in the notes for you. Mark chapter 8, verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days, rise again. Or one chapter later, Mark chapter 9. And he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. Mark chapter 10, saying, See, We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. As far as Jesus was concerned, his death in Jerusalem and all the details about how it would happen was simply pre-written history. Today, as we leave Mark chapter 11 and come to Mark chapter 12, we find that Jesus didn't just know the details about his death, but he knew all the details about his resurrection, about the church, and the role that he would play in it into the future. That's what we will discover this morning. Now, Mark chapter 12, Jesus uh, gives us all these details uh, by way of a parable and by way of a prophecy. First, we'll work our way through the parable. We'll read through it and explain it. Then we'll go through it again and try and interpret it and show you what it means. Then we'll go to the prophecy and see how this wraps up the whole message that Jesus has for this section. Now, before we get into a parable, let me explain to you what a parable is. A parable is simply a fictional story with a true spiritual meaning. It's a fictional story with a true spiritual meaning. 
And that's what Jesus did. He made up a story and put us true for the purpose of teaching spiritual truth. So let's look at this parable. Number one, the parable. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. It begins by saying he began to speak to them in parables, plural. But at this point, we only find one parable singular in the Gospel of Mark. The reason is because Mark only tells us one of the parables that Jesus taught at this time. It's called the parable of the tenants that we're going to study this morning. But if you look at the parallel account in the Gospel of Matthew, you find actually there's three parables, at least three parables that he taught at this time. Incidentally, this parable of the tenants we're looking at in Mark is also found in Luke, and it's found in Matthew, Luke 21 and Matthew 21. And as we study this same parable through the Gospel of Mark, we will go ahead and and bring some data in from the Matthew and Luke account of the very same thing. The first thing we see in the opening verses that we read is that uh, there's a rich man who owned this ground and who planted this vineyard, and he did everything possible to make it a raging success. There is no reason that this vineyard should fail. Uh, He planted the choicest of vines. He took the rocks out of the ground. He made a protective fence around it so animals and villains could not get in. He set a watchtower up so that they could have a lookout place to see if there was anything getting into the vineyard to ruin it. He even set up a wine vat and a wine press so they could have the choicest of wine made right there. It should go very well. Now, it says he leased out this vineyard that he created to some tenant farmers. In the days of Jesus, this would be a a very normal thing to do. In fact, when you look in Jerusalem, the hillsides surrounding Jerusalem were typically owned by wealthy landowners who then had leased it out to tenant farmers to do the actual work in the vineyards. Not much different than what we do in Iowa, where people rent different pieces of ground, and then they farm the ground that they have rented. It's it's the same thing that's going on here. It says the owner of the ground was gone for a long time. By the way, that makes good sense, because if you study this and you look in the Bible what it says about this, after you plant a vineyard, you learn it's typically four to five years before you get a harvest from that vineyard. So the wealthy landowner has set things up. He's put the tenant farmers in the farm to work the farm, but probably gone for about four to five years because there's no reason to come back and get some of the crop that you would normally expect. But herein lies a little bit of the problem. When you're the owner of the vineyard and you may be gone for four to five years, what do the tenant farmers start to think about the vineyard when they don't see you? that maybe it's actually their vineyard, that they own it, even though they don't. That's a little bit of the problem we have going on here. Before we get too far into this particular uh, story, I need to tell you that there is a um, very similar parable that is found in the Old Testament. 
And Jesus' audience would obviously know their Old Testament very well. So as soon as Jesus starts talking about this parable of the tenant farmers, they would instantly connect it with a very similar parable from Isaiah chapter 5, which also talks about vineyards and farmers. Let me read for you those opening verses of Isaiah 5 so you can see the similarity. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewn out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. You hear the familiarity here? Isaiah chapter 5 and Mark chapter 12, talking about the same thing. Incidentally, it says here that he was looking for it to yield wine grapes, but it ended up yielding wild grapes, sour grapes. Now, in Isaiah, this parable focuses on the the fruit uh, that should be coming from the vineyard. Jesus is not going to focus the similar parable in that direction, but this is a little bit of the interpretive key we get as we get to verse 7 of Isaiah 5. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. Now, for now, I want you to just notice the interpretation of that parable that Isaiah gives us. Put that on hold in your brain. We'll get to it in a few minutes. It'll help us be the interpretive key to help us uh, understand what Mark chapter 12 is teaching. But let's go right back to Mark chapter 12 and see how uh, Jesus' parable continues to unfold. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and they beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Well, this is not good. It is four to five years after the vineyard has been planted. The owner sends a servant, expecting, of course, he should get his portion of the crop, the agreed-upon amount. The tenant farmers are wicked. They are evil. They don't give this servant anything. They beat him. And you can almost feel the anger inside of you just hearing that kind of a story. Imagine Jesus' audience that that kind of lifestyle was something they were accustomed to. The fury and the outrage. How dare they do this? But it gets worse. And again, he sent to them another servant. And they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. Struck him on the head literally means this guy, they bashed in his skull treated him completely shamefully. At this point, you do not want to work for the owner of this vineyard because if he sends you to get what is rightfully yours, visiting this vineyard is like going to an MS-13 gang paradise. All these guys want to do is just beat the servants, destroy the servants, crush in their heads, and it gets worse. And he sent another, and him they killed And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. Now there's an amazement that goes on for us here. 
the amazement, first of all, is that the tenant farmers who are on property that isn't even their own, who are so audacious is to beat, kill, and destroy the master's servant who, servants who are coming to get what is just rightfully theirs. But the other amazing part is the patient of this, patience of this vineyard's owner, isn't it? Because if you or I were in charge, you mess with my servant one time, maybe another servant a second time, what would we do? We would send an army in there and destroy every last one of these villains. But not this vineyard owner. He is so patient, so kind, constant believing the best. And again and again, he's sending his servants who are getting mistreated, abused, and killed just so he can get what is rightfully his. Matthew, in the parallel account, tells us this. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. That's another form of how these people were killed. Then in verse 6, he had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, surely they will respect my son. And if you're like the people in Jesus' audience, as soon as you hear that this owner is sending his own son, his beloved son, what are you saying? Don't go! Don't! Don't trust these guys! They're probably going to kill your son. But the owner of the vineyard says, no, I, I still believe the best. I still trust the most. And what happens? He sends his son and says, but those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. These tenant farmers, they had no respect. No respect even for the owner's beloved son. And their thinking was so completely warped and twisted. They thought if we could just kill the son, maybe then the vineyard will be officially ours. Now if you kill the son, I think what's going to happen is the amazing patience of the owner is going to come to an absolute and complete end. And that's exactly what happens. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Well, we would have destroyed those guys a long time ago. Old Testament justice, you've seen it. You know, you kill somebody, we kill you. But that owner was so patient and so kind. Now, let's go through this parable again, but let's try and interpret it. What was the message that Jesus was teaching through this? So let's look at the interpretation. Who was the planter of the vineyard? Does anybody think they know? Anybody have an idea who that planter of the vineyard was? I heard it in the back. Somebody said God, right? It was God. Where do we get that interpretive key from? Remember Isaiah chapter 5? Same kind of parable, and Isaiah explains it. The vineyard is planted by God. Now, what does the vineyard represent? Anybody have an idea? God's people. Isaiah chapter 5, same kind of teaching. 
Well, who are the tenant farmers, do you think, in Jesus' parable? Any idea? The spiritual leaders of the people. They're the ones who have been producing sour grapes instead of wine grapes. They're the ones who have been leading and abusing the people and leading them astray. We've already seen in the Gospel of Mark that Jesus has cleared the temple out. He calls those guys a house of robbers. How dare the spiritual leaders of my house set up a mini mall right inside the house of worship? How dare they make it a place for money changers, like a bank? It's a place where the nation should be able to worship. These guys are corrupt, these spiritual leaders. If you want to get a good idea about how corrupt Jesus thinks they are, uh, this afternoon sometime, go to Matthew 23 and read what Jesus says about the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees there. I mean, he throws them under the bus, bus incredibly so. Let me just give you uh, two verses from that chapter to give you an illustration. Matthew 23, 13. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. These are the religious leaders of the nation of Israel. And he says, you know what you guys are doing? Instead of leading people to God, you're busy shutting people out of the kingdom of God. And you guys aren't even part of God's kingdom. You're just completely doing the wrong thing. You're hypocrites. It sort of reminds me of a movie we actually saw in our house uh, this past week. I can, you know, there's a hard, it's a hard time to find a good movie to watch, so I'll actually give you a good movie you can see with your family. It's called The American Gospel, and it's a documentary. It's about two hours long, so it's a little lengthy, but it's really good. It's about the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel in America and how it is absolutely the false gospel that is being peddled all across our nation. And they have the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel clips, and then afterwards they have what the Bible actually says. And it's really informative. And when I was thinking about that, I'm like, that's just like these religious leaders. You know, they look good, they're really popular, but they're peddling a false gospel that is actually leading people away from the kingdom of God, not to the kingdom of God. Look out uh, two verses later what Jesus says about them in Matthew 23. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when, one, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Boy, that's stiff. Calling the religious leaders of Jerusalem children of hell. Cindy and I love to have people over our houses for dinner, but I'll tell you, we would not invite these guys. I don't want them around our children. If Jesus says they're children of hell, they may look good on the outside, but they're terrible on the inside. Next uh, point we should see. What does the long journey the owner of the vineyard took represent? What do you guys think? It represents essentially Old Testament history. 
Because beginning with Abraham, uh, God brought Melchizedek as a priest, and then God consistently had priests for his people that were supposed to study the law and teach God's people the law and to help God's people live fruitful lives for his kingdom and for his glory. But as we're seeing, the spiritual leaders haven't done a good job. Now, who were the slaves God sent to receive his portion of the harvest? Who do you think they might be in that parable? How about the Old Testament prophets? Here's what you need to understand. When you study the Old Testament prophets, you find God raised them up, sent them to his people to call them back to himself. But oftentimes, the great adversaries of the Old Testament prophets were the religious establishment that already existed. Just like the tenant farmers were the adversaries to the servants that the, that the landowner sent. I'll give you some examples of this. Um, Justin Martyr, when he was writing a letter to Trypho, he was an early church father, he accused the Jews of actually killing the prophet Isaiah by sawing him in half with a wood saw. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 37, talks about great heroes of the faith and says some were sawn in half. Most likely, you know who that was referring to? The prophet Isaiah, who was killed by the people of God for just being faithful and doing his job. Another one would be maybe, maybe Jeremiah. Was Jeremiah mistreated? Does anybody know from reading that book? Oh, terribly mistreated thrown into a cistern, given meager rations, eventually stoned to death by the people of God. Once again, it's the leaders of God and the official religious leaders who stoned and attacked the prophets of God. I'll give you some more examples of that. Amos had a flea for his life. Zechariah in, in 2 Chronicles chapter 24 was also stoned to death. Micah in 1 Kings chapter 22 was beaten in the face. Consistently, the official spiritual leaders of God have historically beaten and mistreated and killed the prophets that were raised up by God. The same thing we see in this parable that it was the servants that were sent to the tenant farmers who were beaten, mistreated, and killed. Now let's get to this one that should be pretty easy. In this parable, who was the owner's son? Who do you think that represents? Jesus. Exactly. Jesus. And it, that son was called his beloved son. Earlier in the Gospel of Mark, when Jesus was baptized and he came up out of the water and God the Father spoke after Jesus' baptism, what did God the Father say about Jesus and who he was? This is my beloved son. Exact same words. Now, let's continue. So Jesus is the beloved son who is the head over all the vineyard, who deserves respect, but just like the tenant farmers have killed the prophets in the past, they are bound and determined to kill the owner's son in the present. They're bound and determined to kill Jesus. 
Now, what will God do to the people who murdered his son according to this parable? What do you think? What will God do to the people who murder his son according to this parable? Give them a latte? Kill them. Destroy them. And hand the leadership and management of his vineyard over to somebody else. And that's exactly, by the way, what we find. Because it's the religious leaders of Judaism who are bound and determined and to kill Jesus, and they do. And that takes place around 30 A.D. approximately. Forty years later, Jerusalem, the temple, worship, it's all completely destroyed, done away with, and it's never been returned. That's God's judgment. It was God's judgment on the leaders of Jerusalem for rejecting and killing his own son. Now, we've talked a little bit about the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. We're going to spend a fair amount of time diving into it when we get to Mark chapter 13 because that's talking about that in great detail. But I'll give you a little bit of the details of what happened uh, right now. We know that when the Romans decided that they were going to destroy Jerusalem, uh, the first thing they did was surround that massive city and cut it off from outside influence and anything going in and out. The goal was to starve them. And many people did starve. In desperation, some people tried to flee out of the city. Anyone who tried to flee Jerusalem, the Roman armies that were around Jerusalem took them and crucified them around the city on crosses facing into the city so all the inhabitants of the city could see anyone who tried to flee that die a gruesome death. When the Romans finally breached the wall and went into the city, Josephus, the historian, tells us that they killed over a million Jews, one by one, with the sword. Imagine the amount of devastation. When they came into the temple, they completely destroyed the massive temple we've been studying, leaving not one stone upon another. Eusebius, who often writes some church history, he tells us that the Romans then at that point individually hunted down every descendant of David they could find, killing them so there could never be a descendant of David that would ever rise again to take that throne. After they had completely decimated Jerusalem by killing over a million people, then they spread out from there and they decimated over a, almost a thousand villages surrounding Jerusalem, completely wiping out all of the Jews in them. What's going on? That is the judgment of God. The judgment of God on the religious leaders and the nation of Israel for rejecting his son. Now, it says in this parable that God will give the leadership of his vineyard and the care of his vineyard to new caretakers. Who do you think those new caretakers might be? Jesus and the apostles. And we see that clearly detailed out as we leave this parable and we go to a little further into a prophecy 
that Jesus quotes, that he says he is the one that will fulfill. Let's go ahead and read that. Have you not read the scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This prophecy is found in Psalm 118. It's verses 22 and 23. And Jesus is saying that he is the one that fulfills this. Let's walk our way through this. The stone the builders have rejected. Who is that? The spiritual leaders of Israel. They have rejected Jesus. They see he should not be part of God's house. They want to kill him and eliminate him. It says the stone their builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Now, there's a couple things I learned. There's the cornerstone here sometimes can refer to two different things. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, or 1 Peter chapter 4, the word for cornerstone would be a foundation stone laid first from which all the other stones in the building would be measured off of. But there's another way that you can use this term cornerstone. It can be the head of a corner, as this is literally called the headstone. In other words, it's the crowning stone on top of a building, and sort of the pinnacle stone from which everything flows. Maybe you can think of it this way, like the star that goes on top of your Christmas tree. It's saying the rejected stone will become the pinnacle stone of God's house. And how is this going to happen? It's going to be the Lord's doing. God is going to retake the one that has been rejected by the builders and make him the pinnacle stone of the house, and it's going to be marvelous in our eyes. The word marvelous here can also be translated miraculous. God is going to miraculously take the one that has been rejected by the builders and make that stone the most important stone in his house. The parable, it says that because the uh, leaders of God's people have rejected Jesus, they will be judged by God. They will be destroyed by God and the leadership of God's people will be put over to somebody else. Who will that person be? Jesus. The rejected stone will become the cornerstone. Folks, I can summarize it this way. Oh, before I do that, let me just jump down to um, Luke chapter 20, verse 18. Luke says this. He adds a little line that Matthew and Mark don't have. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. The idea is that Jesus is made by God the cornerstone of the church. He will either be your cornerstone or he will be your crushing stone. He is the head. I put it this way in the box for you. God has done away with the Old Testament priests, temple, and sacrificial system. God the Father has now placed our authority in Jesus, his Son. And since Jesus holds all authority, he must be the cornerstone of our life, or he will be the crushing stone of our life. And that's what the scriptures say. How can we apply this? 
right now we're in a political season. I can't miss it. All over the television and the internet, candidates for president asking for your votes. And what are they saying? You can trust me. I'm for you. Vote for me and I'll make your life better. I'm the leader you want to follow because I'm good and I'm honest. And all my opponents, they're corrupt and selfish. I've got news for you. Every single politician is corrupt and selfish. Some more so than others, but every single one of them is. And I can say that because if the very leaders of God's people are corrupt and selfish, surely people who are non-Christian leaders are corrupt and selfish as well. Don't you wish there was somebody you could trust? Somebody you could put your life under their authority and know that they really meant well for you? There is. There's only one person. His name is Jesus. Because he's the one who came not to use you. He came to die for you. Things he may say in his word are, are hard. They're truthful. But they're helpful and they're honest and true. He is the one authority in our life that we can trust. Above any other political authority <laughs> and any other authority that we have. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your son. He's not up for election. We're not voting for him. But you have made him the greatest and highest authority in this world. He is the one you have made the cornerstone, the pinnacle of your church. And Jesus, you deserve to be the cornerstone, the pinnacle of our life. Because if you are not our cornerstone, the scriptures say that you will be our crushing stone because you are the one that God the Father has put in charge of all things. Because you are the one true good leader out there. The one who gave your life for us, selflessly laid down all of your rights as one who is enjoying the authority and glory of God to take on a human body forever to identify with us, to die for us, and to save us. And Jesus, we want you to be the cornerstone of our life this week and from ever forward. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at ChristToOurCulture.com. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.